Now, I've been a Christian for a while, and I've been imperfectly doing my best to faithfully serve Jesus since I was a child. Now in my 30s, I get to share or remind you all about the Word of God as I speak today. When Pastor Arnold first asked me to teach for him this week, I was a little nervous. After all, there is a big responsibility, as Gil mentioned, to accurately represent the faith in Jesus. But I do my best to daily study the scripture, present myself as an instrument of righteousness, and I like talking about Jesus. So here I am. Today we'll be talking about the joy of a God-honoring righteous life. To say this in a loving manner can be a little polarizing because it is implied that we should be living a God-honoring righteous life. Unfortunately, a lot of people have issue with being told what to do. They might try to convey to you something like, who are you to tell me what to do? Or, oh, so you think you have it all figured out. In some ways, they're right. I'm not anyone special. I'm not better than anyone else, and I don't have everything figured out. But it isn't me, but God, who gives us this calling. So the Christian, I simply remind you that we should honor God. We are his servants, after all. Jesus is the head of us, the church. He is the vine, we are the branches. To the unsaved, if there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly loving God, who better, who better to tell you how to live than him? Thankfully, it's not all gloom and doom, because as we'll see today, there is a real joy in living a God-honoring righteous life. Such a life is accessible to all, given that we put our faith in Jesus. Before we dive in, I'd like to open us up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We thank you for the veterans, um, and in some ways they model you, uh, Christ dying for us, right? They, get, they serve and they give our, their lives, and they give their lives for their country, but you gave your life for all. We just praise you, and we ask that you speak to us, you reach our hearts, and, that, and I humble myself so that you can take over, Lord, and your word and your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To cover the topic of, a joy, of the joy of a God-honoring righteous life, we'll be in Psalms 32. Please feel free to turn there. Although not fully revealed yet, this Psalm 32 tells us the joy we have in being upright and presents the gospel blueprint. To help us really dive deep into this scripture, we'll enlist the help of Paul as we look to discuss the full revelation of the gospel through Jesus Christ and the joy we have in honoring God. For this reason, we won't be going through Psalm 32 chronologically, but we will cover all the verses as we follow the order laid out in Romans. The book of Romans is a great book <clears throat> to help expound this psalm because it is deep, but also provides foundational information that non-believers, believers new to the faith, and believers who have been serving Christ for a while can grasp about an array of topics. Most importantly, about salvation through Jesus. Interestingly, Paul, the author of Romans, quotes Psalms several times in making his arguments, which gives validity to us examining the parallels today. 
Because we will be selecting various scripture from the first part of Romans as we cover Psalm 32, I will try to set the general context as we go. That way we can make sure we are understanding the Bible in context. To kick us off, David and Paul lay out our first main point, which is mankind's problem. Mankind's problem. Now, you may be thinking, I don't have a problem. Right? From an unbeliever's perspective, you might either end up saying, well, I do more good than bad. I mean, I don't know all about all this religious stuff, but I've never tortured anyone. I take care of my family. I volunteer here and there. Or you may say, well, I'm not good, but I'm not as bad as that other person. Unfortunately, that little bit of bad in both cases is called sin. Others may try to use a more holistic approach and say something like, well, there may be a few bad apples, but mankind in general is pretty good. Fortunate, unfortunately, if you take just a few moments to think about the pain and suffering we cause each other, you soon realize the folly of this claim. In fact, if you take a few seconds of silence, you might see an article or hear a police siren disproving your own assertion of mankind's general goodness. So now it becomes clear to us why David and Paul both assert that apart from Jesus, all mankind is under his wrath for our sin. Putting it in the form of a psalm, David says in verses 3 through 4 of our text, Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. As a theological letter to the Romans, Paul puts it like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This brings us to our first sub-point. We are all sinners. The psalmist says in Psalm 53, 1-3, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul further clarifies this in Romans 3, 9 through 12, that this is not just the case for those who say there is no God, but also for those who try to live by the law. Romans 3, 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Jews, those who have the law, and the Gentiles, those who don't. No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person. So here he's quoting the Psalms. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. I think you get the point. Sin is a problem. Just in case you aren't sure. Paul adds weight to the, to the severity of the problem 
by adding that not only are we sinners under his wrath, but we do this in spite of knowing God. Paul puts this claim in the form of, arg- in a form of an argument where he states that we know God through his attributes because of creation. As Paul says in Romans 1, 19-20, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is why it is no surprise to me when James, as he begins to remind us about how our works should follow our faith after just rebuking partiality, says the following in James 2.19. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons believe also and shudder. Now it is true that some may incorrectly understand his nature for what he has done, but he has made himself evident to all mankind. The reality is, some accept this general revelation when they claim to believe in God, while others who claim to not know God are actually choosing to suppress the truths made evident to them. Now, this is bad, but just in case you have any last doubts, Paul, one last time, elevates the problem when he asserts that we do all the above despite having God's law. Some have the law of Moses, as Paul says in Romans 3.2, great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. Speaking of the Jews, they have the law of Moses. Others have a law unto themselves through their conscience that God has given them. As Paul puts it in Romans 2.14-15, for when Gentiles, those who don't have the law, instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these though not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. David provides some context here to advise us that we will be taught. Now, whether that teaching comes from another believer, God's word, or our conscience, he points out the tendency we have to disobey the law as he puts it in our text today, verses 8 through 9. I will instruct you and teach you in in the way which you should go. I will advise you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. This reveals the fact that no mere man can follow the laws God has given them because of our sinful nature. So none of these laws can save. As Romans 2.25 puts it, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. Julian, you said this was not all gloom and doom. You're right. God has you here. This brings us to our next sub-point, God's solution. Now, I know the outlook was cloudy, but here comes the sun. And we can jump right into the good news on our ne- and our next sub-point. Jesus died for our sins. 
as David puts it in verse 1 and 2 of our text, how blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now think about this for a second. That problem of sin was bad. I mean, we heard our charges. To be truthful, we were hopeless. But now, it looks like we have a way out. Because our wrongdoing can be forgiven. Our sin can be covered. Our guilt can be not taken into account. Okay, get ready, guys. As Paul puts it in a very detailed and lengthy way. Don't worry, I'll help you out after this. Romans 3, 21 through 30. But now apart from the law, of right, the, right, the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law of the, and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It has been excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will, be, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Julian, that was too long. I didn't listen. I didn't catch any of that. That's fair. I got you. <clears throat> Paul says in just two verses, Romans 5, 8 through 9, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That was better. Can you say it a little more focused? Hey, I'm here to serve. Paul says in just one verse, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <clears throat> Let's summarize the problem and the solution. I know there is a God from his creation. I know his law, whether that be the law of Moses or the law unto myself via my conscience. I can't keep the law because I choose to sin, so I'm under God's wrath. But the Father sent his perfect Son, who could fulfill the law to die in my place, and he justifies me by crediting the righteousness of Christ to my account as a gracious gift, apart from works, when I put my faith in Jesus. Yes, you guys are good. Lesson, we need Jesus. Yep, we need Jesus. Where do we go from here? Well, we set the foundation, but we didn't yet get to our topic today. Let's dig into the details as we come to our next point. The practical dilemma and the daily choice. 
Practical Dilemma, and The Daily Choice. Julian, just from your, our summary a few seconds ago, we said we are declared righteous by faith in Jesus, what we call justification. So what is this message about? I mean, we're free from the law, right? Yes, as Paul put it in Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And we are free from the guilt and bondage of sin, right? Yes, David puts it this way in verse 5 and 6 of our text. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Certainly, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach you. So then, I basically, by default, fulfilled this sermon, right? I mean, Paul says in Romans 8, 1 through 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Well, I like your observations. But today, we aren't just talking about justification, which means being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. We're also talking, and don't want to forget, about our ongoing sanctification. You see, the issue is, even though we are positionally justified, we don't always act like we should. In fact, we can behave in a way that does not honor God at all. Sometimes, we even present ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness, as if we were still dead in sin. This brings us to our next subpoint: How to live given our freedom. Our sin nature still wants to rule over us. If we give it the opportunity, our sin will do this to the extreme, dishonoring the name of Christ and ruining our witness. Some have fallen into things which we are now ashamed of. Others, to possibly combat this inclination or to possibly promote self-righteousness, tried to overcorrect. Both sides eventually miss the point. Paul addresses and rejects both of these positions, pointing us to the heart of the issue. One of these choices that people migrate to is what I'll label as anarchy. The position goes something like this. I am free from the law, so now I can choose, I can live as I choose to, even if that means I want to sin. I mean, I'm saved. Paul quickly rejects this when he says in Romans 5, uh, 6.15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Far from it. But Julian, grace. Paul says you're missing the point. You can't live in sin because you're dead to it. He handles this and replies to the position when he says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? Be honest, it gets even worse because the very flesh that you died to is in opposition to being right with God 
being justified. The one true God you are claiming to be alive to, the one you are trying to serve and please. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, 7 through 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is, even able, it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So no, you shouldn't live in sin if you are saved, not because it makes you saved or unsaved, but because if you, are truly, if you truly are saved, you are dead to sin. The other extreme is all forms of legalism. This position says something like, I am free from sin, so now I can follow the law for the purpose of salvation. Paul reminds us of the weakness of the law and that we now walk according to the Spirit, as he puts it in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul reminds us, in this position, you are also missing the point. You are free from using the law as a means to obtain salvation. Don't subjugate yourself to the law, but now use the fact that you belong to Christ to truly bear fruit for God. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may, might bear fruit for God. Okay, anarchy is not the right position and legalism is not the right position, so then what are my choices? How should I live? Paul gives us two choices. One is clearly bad and the other is good. We can either present ourselves as instrument of righteousness or we can present ourselves as instruments of sin. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as though those who are alive from the dead and your body parts as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul then reminds us of what our choice implies and its outcome in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that the one whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Lesson. Daily, you should choose to present yourself as an instrument of righteousness for God, not as an instrument of sin. So now, I know that we had a problem. God has a solution. I am positionally justified, free from the law, and saved by grace, that my flesh has died in Christ's crucifixion, and I must daily choose to present myself to righteousness. 
But how do I actually have a God-honoring righteous life? On to my next point. A God-honoring righteous life. To begin, let's list six practical methods for having a God-honoring righteous life. Number one, rely and put your faith in God. As David puts it in verse 7 of our text, You are my hiding place. You keep me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Think about it for a second. We can rely on him and find safety and deliverance in our God. We see a great example of this in Abraham when Paul says in Romans 4, 21 through 22, and being fully assured of what God had promised, that's Abraham who's fully assured, he was, and he was also able to perform what he said. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God and knew he could rely on him. Number two, meditate on his word. As it is put in Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Do you know and meditate on God's word to make sure that your actions are honoring him? If not, then read and meditate on the word. Number three, Pray and give thanks. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do you take time to rejoice and thank God for what he has done for you? If not, start today. Number four, love God and love others. Jesus, when being questioned by the Pharisees, summarizes the root of the law when he says in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And that comes from Deuteronomy. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God and love others. Just a point here, um, because of, of the sin that we talked about earlier, right, uh, that's a hard thing, right? So make sure when you're, you're reaching out to people, you know, be kind and gentle and loving. Make sure you're loving God and loving others. Obey his commandments is number five. Obey his commandments. Jesus also clearly communicates that to love him means the following when he says, in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Last one, number six. Walk in the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 through 6 says, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So can you provide a little more clarity 
by living in the spirit, do you mean constantly having some spiritual experience? No, not necessarily. Here we just mean the practical decision of yielding to the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer for accomplishing God's purposes. In other words, we should present ourselves as instrument, instruments of righteousness daily. What is not To clarify, what is not implied when we say walking in the Spirit is shown in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Because as it says in Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The result of, having, of walking in the Spirit should be as shown in Galatians 5, 22-23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This brings us to our last sub-point. Have, have joy in your God-honoring righteous life. Let us now focus on the joy of a God-honoring righteous life. As it says in Psalms 119, 1-7, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who comply with his testimonies and seek him with all their heart. They also do no injustice. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we are to keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I'll not be ashamed when I look at you, all your commandments. I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. It is clear that we aren't forced to honor God. Instead, now that we are free from sin, it is our pleasure. The psalmist echoes this in Psalm 97, where he says, Psalm 97, 11 through 12, Light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Be joyful in the Lord, you righteous ones, and praise the mention of his holy name. We can see having a God-honoring righteous life is no burden, it's a joy. Let's see how I'm doing on time here. I'm doing good, okay. <laughs> to close out our, our text and teaching for today, David says in Psalm 32, 10 through 11, the sorrows, this is verse 10 and 11 of our text, the sorrows of the wicked are many, but the one who trusts in the Lord Goodness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Think about it for a second. We have joy because we are right with God. Does this make life perfectly easy? No. But when frustrations boil over and your anger wants to tear your family apart, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and bring your family together. When you lose your job and things are tight, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and rely on him. When someone is taken from you, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and trust in his goodness. When you hurt someone, 
you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and work to restore your offense. When someone hurts you, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and forgive them. When you find yourself in sin, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and repent. When sickness overwhelms you and won't relent, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and trust in his character. When everything is going perfectly fine, you can present yourself as an instrument of righteousness, honor God, and enjoy his peace and love. You can't do these things apart from God, but when you put your faith in Jesus, you are free to choose to honor God in these ways and many more. And how joyful these things are. Let us finish with this lesson. There is real joy in honoring God. I want to close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for all you do. And we thank you for freeing us, Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross. We know we had a problem that we couldn't solve. But you died on the cross for us, Lord, that we can be free. Free to sin? No, Lord. Free to present ourselves as instrument of righteousness and to have joy in that. It's not a burden. Your yoke is easy, Lord. Lord, we just thank you and we ask that for those who do believe, we focus on you and make sure we align our lifestyle with the fact that we are justified. Those who don't believe, Lord, let us be able to reach out to them and let them come to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.